name is Daniel. I am the worship pastor here, as Jessica said, and it is my, my honor to get to preach. And I love the, the, the series that we're in. We're in a series from the Gospel of John called The Glory of the One and Only. And uh, I want you to open your Bible to, to John chapter 1. Uh, but before we dive in, I want to hammer home two important contextual points that we need to keep in mind throughout our study of the rest of this book. Point one is that John assumes that we have a working knowledge of the other Gospels. This is not a synoptic Gospel, but he assumes that we have an awareness of the story around the life of Christ. For example, we're talking about John the Baptist this morning, and he just kind of assumes you know some information about him, where he came from, what he was doing. Um, so that's the first point. So we want to be reading the Gospels together as a, as, a, as a whole to get more insight into this, this series Point two is that if John 20, verses thir- uh, verse 31, is the thesis statement, that's the one that says, uh, I wrote all these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing have life in his name. If that's the, the thesis statement of the book, then verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1 are the expanded long form it's the expanded long-form thesis. And you all remember thesis papers from high school. Some of the doctor, doctorate uh, graduates in here are like, oh yeah, thesis papers from high school. Um, that was the one where you had your introductory paragraph, and at the end of it, you made some kind of a claim, whether it was from data or an interpretation of, a, of, a, of literature that you were going to defend throughout the rest of the, of the thesis paper. Well, that's what the prologue is like. And from now on, the rest of the content of the book of John, the the narrative, is like the support texts for the claims made in verses 1 through 18. So, we need to read this book with the larger context of the other three Gospels, as well as with the prologue ringing in our ears, which is why we're trying, as a church, to memorize verses 1 through 18. So who can do it? We have candy for you. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But so, the, the, so those two points are important to keep in mind through the rest of this series. And this morning, we're shifting out of that expanded thesis into the narrative, which we're going to cover a lot of. And so we're going to try to, to move through it in an engaging and fun way. So let's get started in verse 19. He says, This was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He didn't deny it, but he confessed, I am not the Messiah. What then, Elijah? I am not. The prophet? No. Who are you then? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What can you tell us about yourself? He said, I am a voice crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked him, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? He says, I baptize with water. John answered them, Someone stands among you, but you don't know him. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. All this happened in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So we're going to label the first part, the first half of this narrative, the last old covenant prophet or the first new covenant herald. And John the Baptist is such an intriguing figure. He's this wild man living out in the desert, scrounging a living from, from bugs and honeycombs. And, and, but he still possessed this spiritual fortitude and this, this wherewithal to stand up to the religious and political elite of the day. 
He had his own band of disciples and his own ministry of baptism, and, and uh, it drew plenty of crowds. So as with all celebrity religious figures, it's no surprise that a cult sprung up around him, which John the Gospel writer uh, will address. But we want to establish what he truly was. He was the last in a long line of Old Covenant prophets. The role of the Old Testament prophet was to do one thing, where the priest was to act as the representative of the people going into the presence of God, the prophet was to act as the representative of God to the people. Prophets revealed the nature of God, God's instructions, his oracles, God's plans to the people of God. But he did it as an official emissary. He wasn't just an observer who sort of discerned the times. This was a God-given message to proclaim to his people. He was a herald an official messenger bringing news. But at this time, there hadn't been an old covenant prophet that we know of for nearly 400 years. The voice of God to his people had been silent. So the religious elites, who are from this point on in the gospel just described as the Jews, recognized that he was something special. He was something different, which is probably why they sent the priests and their Levite security forces out to interrogate him about his role and his message. So what was John the Baptist heralding? We're going to see that John's message was a prophetic message that consisted of three things. The first is the reality of humanity. Put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes for a moment. You have tremendous momentum in ministry. Crowds are flocking to you out in the desert like hipsters going to Burning Man. <laughs> Big wigs of the day are starting to flex their, their, their muscles at you because you smell like a threat to their spiritual monopoly. The, the, the whole national media spotlight is on you. Wouldn't the temptation when confronted by these religious people, wouldn't the temptation be to kind of self-aggrandize, to assert yourself in your authority? And it's an amazing testimony to the grace of God that John consistently does the exact opposite of that. In providing the transcript of the interrogation, the gospel writer John is likely trying to address that first century issue of a cult following of John the Baptist. Verses 6 through 8 of the prologue are dedicated to repudiating the idea that John the Baptist was the Messiah. And here in verse 20, we get it directly from the horse's mouth where he says, he did not deny but confessed, I am not the Messiah. In fact, John the Baptist's denial uses the exact same language as Jesus's affirmation of his own Messiahship and deity later on in the book. In the book of John, there's these seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. I am... The biggest one is when he says to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. And in the Greek, he says, ego, a me. Ego, a me, the bread of life. Ego, a me, this, that, and the other thing. Before Abraham was, ego, a me. And what John says here is, ego, not a me. <laughs> I not am the Messiah. I am not him. And so he's, he's, he's doing it in contrast to Jesus' claim. And he doesn't just deny the title and the role, but in verses 26 and 28, John the Baptist recognizes that in his fallen state, he isn't even worthy to be the Messiah's slave. 
It was the slaves that took off the master's dirty, sweaty, feces-covered sandals at the end of the day. And John the Baptist says that he's not even worthy to do that. Under the onslaught of questions from the religious KGB, rather than exalting himself to a place of honor or authority, he embraces anonymity and says simply, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. The other gospels reveal that part of John's ministry is not just modeling this, but calling people to this same thing to recognize their place and their neediness before God, to repent of their sin and their self-righteous attempts for salvation and to be reconciled to God. John's message correctly diagnoses the state of humanity and it both assumes and promotes a position of humility in light of who is about to appear on the scene. And when Jesus does arrive on the scene, John's message shifts to reveal the goodness, the greatness, and the graciousness of God. This is the most awkward point I have ever made in a sermon. I can't, I have a large vocabulary and I can't think of one word that summarizes that. So I just put the plus signs in between there so that you could like add them all together in your head. Let's look at verse 29 together and we'll see, we'll see this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Little known fact, Jesus was born after John, so he's claiming that that Jesus is eternal here. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist sees Jesus and immediately begins to extol his nature, his attributes, and his role in redemptive history. And in these few short statements, he testifies that Jesus is the one anointed by God's Spirit, identifying him as the Messiah. He identifies him as being the uncreated, eternal second person of the Trinity. He he says that he's worthy enough for the Holy Spirit to obey his command, to serve his his purposes. And he is heralding the... the, uh, sorry, he, oh, and he calls him the Lamb of God who graciously fulfills the obligations and the roles of the Old Testament law. John is doing what prophets do here. He's expositing the person of Jesus to those around him and to us. He's explaining and proclaiming who God is and what he is doing. He's heralding the goodness, the greatness, and the graciousness of God in Jesus. Now, if we were to read just that this morning, not check any cross-references to the Gospels or to the Old Testament, the image that comes into focus of who Jesus is is amazing. But we get to interpret Scripture according to Scripture. And as I was studying this, I I thought about a a story that I heard a while ago. Um, About a year ago, the fashion company Oscar de la Renta rented, leased a commercial space in the luxury shopping district of Paris. I know, it's shocking that they didn't have a presence there before, but 
the, the dark ages of humanity have come to an end, thankfully. <clears throat> and then when I say the expensive part of Paris, I'm talking the $12,000 a month for a two-bedroom, 900-square-foot apartment. So just imagine how expensive a commercial uh, space with a storefront is there. And I was trying to think of a term for this, and the, uh, the phrase, a stupid amount of money, <laughs> came to mind. But, and in preparation for, for stocking this valuable storefront, this valuable space with their $7,000 dresses and their $2,500 handbags, they renovated it. And they did it, and as they did it, they made this shocking discovery. Behind a false wall in the space, they discovered a 9-foot by 18-foot oil painting by one of the old French masters, I'm totally going to butcher this, Arnold de Vuez. And it's a, it's a depiction of a French delegation entering into, into Jerusalem uh, under the, the, the reign of the, the Ottoman Turks. But no one knows how or by who or when it got there. Their best explanation is somebody hid it there to prevent it being looted by the Nazis. And it's going to remain in the store for the life of the lease uh, as part of the decor. And sure, it is going to add some aesthetic value to the storefront, but the, the primary value that it's adding um, is the thrilling connection with the history of Paris and the history of the French people. And John the ba- Baptist's obfuscation nailed it. His waffling about his identity, his reluctance to take a title, actually connects us back to a passage in Isaiah 40 where a totally anonymous voice cries out in the wilderness. As we, as we push on this, we'll see the passage in John is like that storefront. On its face, with the plain reading, the narrative is immensely valuable in what it reveals about Jesus. But if we push past that, back into the Old Testament, we're going to discover a treasure that is veiled just behind our non-ancient Near East Jewish culture. So when the New Testament references a line from Isaiah 40, um, the, the Old Testament passage that's being referenced, uh, it's kind of all fair game. The context around that verse becomes fair game to read. And Isaiah 40 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, and it's not just because I had to memorize it in Bible college. Um, it's because after 39 chapters of almost exclusively doomful proclamations of coming judgment and exile, there's this shift in chapter 40. And notice the first words of the passage are comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to her. Call, announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight a highway for our God in the desert. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What is it that is happening here? Isaiah is prophesying before any of these historical events ever happened that there will be an end to the coming exile 
of, of the nation of Israel and that the glory of God will return to Jerusalem. In fact, he welds these two ideas together, the end of exile and the return of glory, so inseparably, sorry, inseparably that uh, the end, the conclusion of the book of Nehemiah is super anticlimactic. They get sent back to the land. They rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The temple is reconstructed and the glory of God does not come back and everything kind of ends with this. So why is the glory of God returning to Jerusalem part of this prophecy? Well, I love this part. I love getting to trip out over Bible prophecy. And you're gonna take that trip with me. The prophet Ezekiel whose prophecies begin while he's in the exile that Isaiah is prophesying about, Ezekiel has a vision. And Ezekiel sees that the glory of the Lord that resides in the temple, the glory that, that Pastor Jeff talked about last week, that glory lifts itself up above the temple. It moves to the eastern gate of the city, and it leaves the people of Israel out into the desert. It departs from them because of their faithlessness. And where does the prophecy in Isaiah command for a road to be built, a straight and level path to be constructed in that wilderness? Because the glory of the Lord is going to return from the same direction that it left from. Want to trip out even more? Where did Jesus enter the city of Jerusalem? From the Mount of Olives in the east, through the same eastern gate that the glory of the Lord had departed from? Where did Jesus ascend to heaven from? Out the eastern gate on the Mount of Olives. Now this is debatable, but where in traditional Christian Christian eschatology do they believe that the second coming of Christ is going to happen? On the Mount of Olives. And he'll enter in through the eastern gate and then there will be the new Jerusalem, the new garden city, and the, and the glory of the Lord will never again depart from humanity. When John the Baptist is linking us to this passage in claiming to be the voice crying in the desert, it's not just the end of Israel's exile from the land, but the return of the glory of God And it's the beginning of the end of exile from the presence of God for all humanity. Brothers and sisters, we are exiles from the garden because of our sin. Sin that cuts us off from a place of intimate fellowship in the presence of God. So when John the Baptist claims, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is saying, here is the end of your exile the end of your exile from the garden, from the, from the very presence of God because God is dealing with the wages of your sin. In this proclamation, John the Baptist is echoing Isaiah 40 again. In, in verse nine of Isaiah 40, it says, Zion, herald of good news, go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news, raise your voice loudly, raise it, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord comes with strength and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and he carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those who are nursing. 
John is completing his task as an old covenant prophet by directing everyone's attention to the fullest revelation of God, the incarnate word in Jesus of Nazareth. And John's message of the reality of humanity, the goodness and the graciousness and the greatness of God, the beginning of the end of exile is all summarized in that short phrase, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that message is transformative. And that leads us into the second part of the John 1 passage. And we've labeled this one the first disciples or the continuing heralds. At verse 35 in in John 1, a shift takes place. And it's pretty subtle. It happens pretty quick. But it's a shift from the old covenant embodied in John the Baptist to the new covenant embodied in Christ. We go from simply hearing about these things from a prophetic mouthpiece to discovering that in Christ, these things are our experience. They are experiential. And first, we experience the reality of humanity. Read with me the story from verse 35. It says, The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following, he asked them, what are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and you will see, he replied. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew then went and found his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah In verse 42, it says, And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The two disciples of John who initially followed Jesus are experiencing some measure of of longing to be around Jesus. Notice it was when they heard John call him the Lamb of God that they decided to follow him. Was, was it longing to be forgiven of sin that inspired their leaving of John? Was it uh, fascination with ancient religious rituals that inspired their leaving? Or, or did they just think that he was a cooler teacher than John the Baptist? Whatever it was, there was something they weren't getting from John the Baptist that they thought Jesus, they hoped Jesus might have. And that feeling of longing That feeling of needing something is written into our very existence because we were made to live in dependence upon God. It's part of our experience when we're being drawn to the Lord. All of our on-ramps into Christianity in this room are different, but they all involve some measure of needing something deep down. Even if your conversion was largely a mental exercise, there was still a need to find intellectual rest in this world. And I think Jesus affirms this very human reality with his gentle yet comforting question, what are you looking for? What are you you seeking? What are you longing for? I had a perfect example of this this morning. I'm taking care of Clementine while my wonderful wife is up here singing. And she's standing outside the door listening to her mother sing, and she's inconsolable. 
She knows her mother is in there. She knows that she's supposed to be connected to her. She knows that, that, that this intimate relationship is what they need. And she is wailing her head off until Pastor Ryan gave her a donut and then mom's out the window. <laughs> but that, that same longing and need is written into our existence. And these disciples hear this question of what are you, what are you longing for? What are you looking for? And they start to immediately experience the goodness and the greatness and the graciousness of God. Their answer to Jesus' question may seem funny to us. When he says, what are you looking for? And they're like, uh, we want to know where you live. (laughs) But the passage tells us that it was getting late in the day. And they were probably getting hungry and worried about where they were going to sleep that night. They can't just call an Uber and head back to their their own village. And the rules of hospitality would have required Jesus to provide rest and refreshment for these two if he took them to where he was staying. And what do we see Jesus do? Be gracious to them and invite them over. He says, come and you will see. Come, I promise, I won't turn you away. Come, I I won't put you out, I won't reject you. Come, I'll provide you shelter and food. And then what starts to happen immediately after that? These people who experience the goodness and the graciousness of God in Christ become heralds of God. They go and they find their family and their friends and they start to tell them all about Jesus. Then their family and their friends start to experience the power and the greatness of God. Jesus gives Simon a new name in the Old Testament. Only God had the power to rename someone. And then look what happens with Nathaniel. Philip finds Nathaniel. He tells him they found the Messiah. Nathaniel gives a snarky answer, but they take him to see Jesus. And then in verse 47, it says, Then Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said about him, Here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How, how do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus answered, Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. Jesus reveals his divine greatness in his omniscient understanding of who Nathanael is and where he has been. And that greatness draws him in. It draws him closer to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is. And as each disciple comes into relationship with the Lord for, for their, their own variety of reasons, what they are experiencing is the beginning of the end of exile. And although it is intensely humble, God is once again dwelling with his people, once again revealing his glory among them, once again providing light and understanding and life to them. As it says in the passage from Isaiah 40, he's gathering his sheep like a shepherd. He's tenderly caring, caring for them. And then they're going out and gathering more exiles. They're bringing in more sheep. Everyone in, of us in this room, we're direct spiritual descendants of our first parents who were exiled from the garden, and that's our inheritance. We were born in exile. And for most of us, we have longed to return from exile, to peace, to prosperity, to life. 
we have lived with a subtle awareness that we are not where we should be. We've lived knowing that the thorns and the thistles and the toil and the enmity with creation and with with our fellow man is not what we were made for. We were made for citizenship, not exile. And then for those of us who, who are believers in Christ, we are all direct spiritual beneficiaries of John the Baptist. He was the first to proclaim Christ to the exiles. And his disciples became Jesus' disciples who went and made other disciples, other heralds, proclaiming the good news about the end of exile and the return of the glory of the Lord until finally someone proclaimed the good news about him to you and to me. So as the worship team comes back up, I have a a question. It's a veiled challenge. But a question for those for the Christians here in this room. Who and what are you heralding with your speech and your behavior? What message are you proclaiming to yourself, to your family, to your neighbors, to your coworkers? Is it the gospel of the American dream? Is it the the poisonous gospel of self-pity and victimhood? Is it the unmerciful gospel of self-sufficiency and rugged individualism? Or is it the good news of behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Because that is your souls, that is your families, that is your neighbors and your coworkers' greatest need. That the penalty of sin be removed from their account and they be reconciled to God. And for the unbeliever, I want to give you this hope that the beginning of the end of your exile can start in this moment. It can start today because Jesus, the Lamb of God, has in fact dealt with the sins of the world. He knows your need. He knows your humanity. He is offering his goodness and his grace to you. He's saying, come. Come and see and I will give you shelter and food and drink. And rest. And it doesn't require a perfect knowledge to follow him. It requires humility to reach for him. Faith to believe in him. So would you pray with me now? Lord God, we thank you so much for the truth that you've drawn our attention to this morning that the that our time of exile in the garden is over, the exile from the garden is over, and that you are restoring uh, that broken relationship. We ask God for those who are still living in exile, the ones who are far off, that you would reveal your goodness and your greatness and your graciousness to them, that you would reveal your glory to them, that you would send a messenger to them to to proclaim, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and that they would leave whatever other thing that they are following to follow you. That they would call out to you and answer uh, the question of what are you seeking they would they would respond with, with you. We love you, Lord. We praise you and we thank you for the good news that our exile is coming to 
a complete end on the day that you return. We long for that. We praise you in your name. Amen. Thank you.